for whatever time you're listening to this podcast, I'd just like to say good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Before we get started, I'd like to share with you these words by Maya Angelou. Words mean more than what is set down on paper. It takes a human voice to infuse them with a deeper meaning. With that being said, I bring to you greetings from South Carolina, the home of such black icons as Majeska Simpkins, Robert Smalls, James Brown, and the Black Panther, Chadwick Boseman. I'm your host, Michael Bailey, the founder of the Minority Eye News blog and the Minority Voice podcast. I strive to be a vigilant voice for minority communities everywhere. I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Minority Voice, a podcast where there's no politically correct sound bites, no partisan propaganda, and most importantly, no corny celebrity gossip. Just real conversations with real people about real issues that matter to minorities and minority communities here at home and abroad. We give you, our listener, the opportunity to hear the minority perspective on breaking news, upcoming events, hot button issues, and people who are making headlines and news today. All that and more in our own words, in our own voice. As the protege of a Southern Baptist preacher, I say to you what was said to me on a many a Sundays. I promise you I won't be before you long. Once again, I'm your host, Michael Bailey, and I'll do my best to keep it real, relevant, righteous, and radical. This is the Minority Voice Podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I'm Michael Bailey, your host of the Minority Voice Podcast, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. Um, today in the studio, I have with me Mr. Johnny Cadero. He is the current chair of the Democratic Black Caucus of South Carolina, and he is a frequent contributor to the Minority Eye. And Mr. Cadero, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me, Michael. No problem, man. So how was your Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving was good, man. It's a time for family to get together. You know, I never had much to do with Thanksgiving other than uh, a family sit down where we got together. So um, I, I saw something recently about people talking about it. There were no pilgrims and we done, we never did that. Never, <laughs> never existed. It was all the family getting together. Everybody brought a dish and we sat around the table, said a prayer and enjoyed ourselves. And that's actually what this Thanksgiving was. So I'm very grateful and thankful for that. All right. Well, I'd like to thank you for joining me today. My I wanted pleasure. to, um, wanted to talk a little bit about you wrote an article or you submitted an article to our publication and about master of confrontational politics. And that word caught my attention. Um, because, you know, if you look at politics today, it, it all seems confrontational, but I, I had never heard that term used before. And I wanted to, know if you would expound on the term on the term and give us a little bit more about the situation with representative uh Marsha Fudge and Nancy Pelosi and the whole thing about her making a run or a bid for the speaker of the house. Oh, I'll be glad to. You know, um well first of all let's deal with with confrontational politics as an as an ideological and political concept. Confrontational politics basically means in your face. And what it means is, is relentless demand, uh, 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 continuous demand and, and relentless, relentless under, uh, agitation. When we understand that, we begin to realize that what we have to do is a strategy as we have to take the argument to the people who we want to, uh, uh, 
to, I want to use the word impress, but not in the general sense of impression, but rather that we want to understand that we are serious and that we're moving forward. And one of the things that we have not done is we, one of the things that we have done that's been detrimental to us, actually, in my belief, is that what we, we have allowed people to convince us that we need to go along to get along. I remember a story about Adam Clayton Powell, who, to my mind, was the was the most effective African-American politician in our history until this day. And Adam said when he went to Congress back in uh, 55, I think it was, or 54, when he went to Congress for the first time, he um, they told him, the Speaker of the House met with him because Adam was a civil rights activist and the pastor of the largest black congregation in the country at the time. And he uh, told, Adam called Adam into his office and told Adam, said, you know, we heard about you, we know you're here now. He said, what you had to do is go along to get along. And Adam basically told him where to go and how to get there. <laughs> um, because what happens is... Um, in order to go along to get along, what we're really doing is we deciding that our progress must be determined by someone else's timetable. And so that's what, that's what confrontational politics is all about. Being in your face, making sure that your issues are heard, making sure that you don't back down and quiet down. And if I send you to Congress or any other elected office to be a representative, that's what I intend you to do. And that's, I think, what our people intend us to do. So that, in a nutshell, is confrontational politics. Um, and confrontational politics has been used by a lot of people. It's been used by Malcolm X. It's been used by Martin Luther King. It's been used by uh, people like uh, uh, Medgar Evers, uh, uh, James okay. Meredith, the whole bunch of them. It's not, not something that's new. That's okay. I mean. uh, a, little, a little bit more clarity, because when you say uh, confrontational politics was used by Martin Luther King, I'm thinking mm -hmm. nonviolent. I don't think of yeah. Martin Luther King as being confrontational. So what do you mean? Well, uh, how was Martin Luther King confrontation? Here, here's the thing. First of all, Martin King stuck it in the face. Period. Okay. I mean, I may may not I may or may not agree with that with his particular tactic, which of course, as you mentioned, was nonviolence. But he took the fight to them. Okay, so that 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 is confrontation in and of itself. Where Malcolm became, where Martin became a little more aggressive was as he reached the end of his mission. Um, and that was when he started speaking up for the for the Memphis Memphis sanitation workers and others. And he started talking about a war on poverty and he started talking about uh, pitching tents in D.C. for poverty and raising the issue that 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 the issue of poverty was one that was based on uh, the government failure as opposed to people just not being people not being uh, lazy and, and, and not working. So what he did and, and oddly enough, or, or as fate would have it. All of this happened, the progress to a radical, more radical point of view came into existence right before his death. And there are those who believe, myself included, that it was that switch um, in his confrontational polit political approach that was responsible to great measure for his um, for his death or his assassination, I should say. Okay. Um, more about the issue with uh, Marsha Fudge oh, yes. and make her deciding that she was going to make her bid. Uh, for Speaker of the House. Give me your take on that. Okay. First of all, let me take off my hat and kudos to Marsha Fudge, Democrat of uh, Ohio, for what I think was a perfect demonstration of the, what I call the demand. Um, Frederick Douglass is the one that talked about uh, power concedes nothing without a demand. Never did. It never will. Well, she's the living embodiment of that. What she did for those of us who, who, who have not been keeping up with it, basically she came out and said she was going to challenge uh, or rather intimated that she might challenge 
uh, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi for the Speakership of the House. Well, she's not Speaker now, but for the upcoming Speakership of the House. Now, to be honest with you, and I and I don't have this on 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 anything other than my own surmise. I don't think that Ms. Fudge, Representative Fudge, actually believed that she could successfully challenge um, uh, Nancy Pelosi. I think that she also would recognize that at this particular point in time, that Nancy Pelosi is probably the best person for that job coming in with the new with the new Congress and a Democratic majority. Um, but I think that challenge was a threat. And why I love the move so much, it was a dynamic political move. She basically told her, okay, <laughs> it's okay. I, I might come out against you now. Let's talk. And what happened was, the result of it was that uh, Nancy Pelosi, again, example of Nancy Pelosi's ability as a speaker to bring people together. Nancy called her in, as I understand it, and I'm not privy to any private conversations. This is just my surmise. Nancy Pelosi called her in and said, what do you need? And this is where the demand came in, and this is why she did it so well. Ms. Fudge did it so masterfully. She basically said, reestablish the election subcommittee. I'll take the chair. Now, the importance of that is what we realize is that now we have the vote, and we are voting in large numbers. The response to that is what we call voter suppression. And they've done it in Florida. They've done it in Wisconsin. They've done it in Georgia. They're doing it all over. So here's the problem. You got the vote. I can't take the vote away from you. I can't stop you once you get the vote. Okay. I can't reverse trends so that you no longer have the vote. But what I can do is I can stop you from voting. I can have exact matches. I can move polling places all over the place. All of this is nothing but, but, uh, Jim Crow. And what the Subcommittee on Elections of the House of Representatives does, it has control over elections. And now we've got Marsha Fudge sitting at that table. I think that that was a masterful move. And I think that no matter what people say about her, she made a threat that's taken it to him. And then she made a demand. And she's walking away with something, and I'm very optimistic about what she can do in that position, as, awesome, as optimistic I am as about uh, about what um, Annie Maxine, what Maxine Waters will be able to do in her position in the head of the Finance Committee. So um, that's why I think we need to we need to recognize what she did and recognize how politically savvy that mood was. And I think that we're going to see a lot from her. And I think that she has her head on uh, in the right place. And I think she's also political savvy, living example of confrontational politics. Okay, so basically what, what what I'm hearing you saying in terms of confrontational politics is you're looking at a, strat, a political strategy that instead of saying okay, Nancy Pelosi, I'm going to go along because everybody else is going along with you, what, what we need as a community, what it looks like she said, is what we need as a community, African American community they are consciously and with a great deal of effort trying to suppress our vote. So we need to resurrect this committee to deal with it. That the Republicans clearly did away with when they had the majority. And so in order to get Nancy Pelosi's full support, she says, I'm going to challenge you 
for the speaker for the speakership and you know and i get it because in a um you know with the mood of the country with black women um coming out to vote in droves with um black uh candidacy of black women being at an all-time highest nation yeah that could pose a, a a serious threat and i know several i think six or eight are the incoming uh Congress people from, uh, from several states said they were not, they were not in favor of Nancy Pelosi. They wanted new leadership. That's right. I think that in terms of political strategy, if I hear what you're saying, confrontational politics, I think it was a brilliant strategy. Indeed. And the other thing is, which adds to the brilliance of that strategy is that she never, I'm not talking about Representative Fudge now. She never actually said, I'm going to challenge you. All she said was, I'm thinking about it. And Nancy Pelosi recognizing what that could mean, Nancy said, okay, sister, let's talk. <laughs> and she went in, and, and, and that's the beauty of it. And, and what we have to do is, as a people, what we have to understand is that we have been taken for granted for far too long. And some uh, good friend of mine once said uh, that basically, if we don't ask for nothing, we get nothing. <laughs> and so this is this is the ram- remedy or the antidote to that that problem. We've been we've been walking in and we've been walking out of those rooms and saying yes, sir, and sure we'll support you, and we've got nothing from it. So um, I'm I'm just I'm just so happy. I'm overjoyed for for uh, for Representative Fudge and for that the demonstration of that tactic for us going forward. I, I, what you saying? I think I remember. A, a quote. Oprah Winfrey has a great quote and says that you you get in life what you have the courage to ask for. And you know, I, I get it because when I turn to look at South Carolina politics, my greatest fear is that we are never going to ask for nothing. I've been involved in South Carolina politics now. Oh, almost 20 years. Um, and, and I'm, I'm telling my age, but <laughs> you, you know, still I cannot account. I cannot think of one account where we as a community have asked the Democratic Party for anything. And I think it goes to show the larger problem that the party's having in South Carolina in terms of being able to win statewide. Um, as the Democratic chair of the Democratic Black Caucus, what do you feel is some of the acts that the caucus is going to be uh, undergoing in terms of what are you guys planning on asking the um, Democratic Party for in terms of what we need as a community? Okay, well, first of all, um, I-, I have things that I think are, are most important. But what we're going to do in the Democratic Black Caucus is... Forget what I think is important at this point. Mm-hmm. What we're going to do, we're going to start out. Remember, we only came into existence in July. And just for the record, we are the first and only uh, uh, black caucus of the Democratic Party in South Carolina history. Just by as a reference point, um, Georgia, uh, Florida rather, has had one. for They just celebrated their 36th anniversary. And this is the first time we've had one. So just put that in perspective. We came into existence in July. And what we're going to start doing going in, uh, going into the, the coming new year, the coming year, what we're going to do is we're going to do what I'm calling tentatively, uh, uh, listening tours. 
We're going into black communities throughout the state and we're going to ask our people what is most important to you? What do you want us to fight for? What do you want to ensure that is on the Democratic platform? What do you want us to use to hold politicians to, uh, 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 to feet to the fire to ensure that the Democratic Party represents us and shows the value and importance of our core support for all of these years? So it's difficult for me to answer the question. I can answer the question in a personal, what I would, someone asked me what I would say. But for too long, we've been listening to what other people came along and told us what was important to us. So what I want to do now and what we want to do is, as the Black Caucus is, we're going to find out and people are going to tell us. And from that, we're going to formulate the strategy going forward. But I can tell you that there are things that will be on it that are very, very important. I'm, and I am sure. And for my personal, uh, from my personal point of view, obviously it's economics. Uh, obviously it's education. Um, obviously it's mass incarceration. But again, and I have to make this clear, those are my views and my personal views. My views will not dictate what we fight for. What will be dictate what will dictate what we fight for will be what our people say we need to fight for. Okay. How has the um reception of the uh reception of the Democratic Black Caucus been thus far? Have people uh welcomed you with open arms or <laughs> has it been uh hesitant to stick out their hand uh okay with one exception uh and i'm not i'm not going to offer an editorial or commentary information on why this happens i'm just telling you the facts uh we have had uh basically one uh politician in south carolina one black politician in south carolina who's really stretched out a hand to us okay only one uh, I don't know what the reason for the others are. We've attempted to contact some people and maybe we didn't contact the right. It could be, it could be my fault because I'm not personable enough. There could be a thousand different reasons. But the reality is that we have been well received, uh, outside of political circles. Okay. And, um, the people who have received us, I'll, in fact, I'll give you figures. We're now, uh, at somewhere about 150, uh, members, people who have joined us yet. I think that's good. Uh, we, we need to have more, but, um, I think the reception among the grassroots and by the grassroots, I mean those people who are not, not aligned politically, but are Democrats, but are not aligned in the sense that they're not, uh, uh, necessarily supporters of any particular candidate. Okay. Among those people, I think, I think it's, uh, the, I think the uh, support has been aggressive, and I think it's going to grow. Okay, where what is your take on uh, your your review of the midterms? Uh, of course, the Democrats uh, had a had a great night. Um, had a great night, but in South Carolina, things weren't so great. Uh, we did pick up a house seat, um, but in too many others districts. Things stayed the same. Um, where are we in terms of confrontational politics in South Carolina? What, are we just not asking for nothing or where are we? I think we're, we are where we have always been. And I, and I agree with you as far as the statistics are concerned. We did, we had a good showing in South Carolina, but it's not, it's a showing that's consistent without showing over time. Okay. So the question is, and which I, which I think is the question that you allude to is, how is this advantaging us for now and for the future? 
And unfortunately, I have to say it's not. And one of the reasons for this is because our position can be known. Okay. But in order for the change to come, and I'm speaking particularly about South Carolina and only about South Carolina right now, although this could apply nationally, is that some other folks got to get on board. Okay. And that's where confrontational politics comes in. See, it's easy for people to not do anything when you're agreeing with everything that they do. If you accept everything they do and you go along with everything they do and you can be depended on to come out and vote for them anyway, then that's a problem. What confrontational politics says is here, in your face, this is what we need. So all of those people who proclaim themselves to be liberals, who claim themselves to be uh, in favor of progress, who claim themselves to be uh, love everybody. Well, we need to see some of that love from everybody. So here's what happens. And this is another another uh, instance of how confrontational politics works. If I say to you that everybody needs to be fed, there should be no children in South Carolina going to sleep hungry at night. Okay. You can't tell them, I don't care whether you're a Republican. I don't care whether you're a Democrat. I don't care whether you're an independent. I don't care who you are. If you don't agree with that, that's not my problem. That's your problem. But what it teaches me is that I can stop looking to you for support. Now, on the other hand, those people who do agree with that, are people who can then not disagree with what we're asking for. Because everything we're asking for is things are things that will benefit everyone. I'm talking give me an example. The food stamp program. Okay. The food stamp program really feeds white folk. I'm talking about numerically speaking. Okay. Right. So how in the world do you then oppose food stamps? <laughs> Okay, so whether you whether you are Republican, Democrat, as I said, whether you're black or white, doesn't make any difference. The people who are being fed are poor children, and they're going to they go. Then we're going to prevent them from not being malnourished and not going to and going to bed at night not hungry. Okay, so how do you not agree with that? So what we have to do is we have to show people up for what they're really talking about, and what they're really saying is, yeah, we agree with all things, but only for us, right? Okay. Okay. Um, do you, what, what are some of the other goals and things that you guys are going to be working on in, uh, 2019 in well, terms of, in terms of the caucus? We're not only, we're not only going to, after the listen, after the listening tour and we put this together, we're going to, we're going to do on a second level, uh, we're going to put together a uh, questionnaire that will be given to, uh, anybody who comes to us for support. Okay. And frankly, if they can't buy on to, uh, to our, uh, our agenda, then they can't ask for our support. I don't know. I know that sounds, I know that we may have some arguments with that. Some people who are saying that we've gone too far. You're taking it to, no. Confrontational politics. It's time that we start standing up for what we wanted. So that's, that's one of the things. The other thing is that functionally what we would like to do. We'd like to make it possible so that going forward, the Democratic Party not only embraces the interests of its core constituency, but it also puts it on the front burner. So not only must the politicians who are, who are trying to seek our support uh, adhere to this, but also the Democratic Party 
as a whole, the DNC from the DNC on down needs to start coming for. See, here's, here's our problem. They do things like uh, economic equality, um, uh, criminal justice reform. Those are euphemisms that don't mean anything about anybody. What we're talking about is mass incarceration. What we're talking about is is things like when this this is the word that's going to scare everybody. Reparations. Oh my goodness, we can't talk about reparations. But the question is, do we when we when we talk about reparations, are we talking about somebody giving the federal government giving people money, or are we talking about getting this dialogue on the front? Because what happens is. You cannot deny, and no person of good conscience who understands history and has lived in this country can rep- will will uh, disagree with the fact. In fact, they did a study some time ago, which asked which asked folks, white folks, asked white folks, uh, do you think that um, that African Americans have been disadvantaged in this country? And they said, yeah, like ninety eight percent or something. Said yeah, ninety five percent. And I, I may have the, I may, may have the percentages incorrect, but ninety five percent. Uh, and then they asked, um, basically, uh, would you change positions with African Americans given the history and what has happened to us? And again, high percentage, overwhelming majority said, heck no. Okay. And then they asked him, do you think that the, <laughs> these people are entitled to reparations? And they also said overwhelmingly, hell no. Uh, so you see where the problem lies. But right. what we're not, we're not talking about something that is, is, is saying, give us a, an amount of money. What we're saying is, let's first get to the table and discuss this situation and see how the treatment of African Americans in this country has affected our status today. And here's the beauty of this. When we come up, the party comes up. The party wants strong and so, because what's happening is African Americans in, 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 in lo- increasingly large numbers are starting to question the Democratic Party. And they're starting to question more appropriately whether or not we should be and we can today in 2018 and uh, 2018, whether or not we can in good conscience continue to support the Democratic Party. So what happens is if we make these corrections within the party, and that's what the, that's what the Democratic Black Caucus is intent upon doing. We ain't trying to wipe out the Democratic Party. What we're trying to do is to bring the Democratic Party to its senses and to see that the embracing of our issues and to make our issues first and foremost uh, in their platform will benefit the Democratic Party as a whole and therefore will benefit the entire country. Well, uh, it, it, it's it's funny you say that because I look at a situation where we had uh, in South Carolina we had uh, Representative James Smith and Representative uh, Ma- uh, Mandy Norrell. She's um, they were at the top of the ticket, uh, Governor and Lieutenant Governor. Now I wrote in a article about will we. Uh, will African Americans, uh, vote for the only ticket that doesn't have a minority on it? Because the other two ta- the other two challengers that challenged, uh, James Smith, they had an African American, both per, both people had African American on their ticket. And so overwhelmingly, we voted for James Smith. The one, the guy that had no minority on the ticket. Now, understand when I talk with, 
Democratic strategists in the state, they said that what they did was they picked uh, Mandy. It was a woman. That was their diversity. The thing was to create some diversity without putting a minority on the ticket. The hopes that moderate white people or independents would vote for the white white woman, but they would a white all white ticket, but they would not vote for a ticket that had a black person on it. Now, I thought that to be strange given the makeup of Democratic Party in South Carolina. Uh, it's mostly black people. Um, that's who you can count on. But okay, uh, you know. It wasn't strange. Don't... It was disingenuous is right. what it was. Right. <laughs> well, they don't write me a check. So, uh, but when I looked at Florida and Georgia, where you had an African American at the top of the ticket, those races were so close they were still fighting last week. Now, both of them had sent, uh, Andrew, uh, McGillum and Stacey Abrams both lost, but we know they lost because of voter suppression. It's Absolutely. Clearly, they know it. We all know it. America know it, but it was close. And because the race was so close in both cases, I say that they won. won. Okay. <laughs> they won, but they didn't give it to them. Right. Got it. But here in South Carolina, it wasn't even close. And we had an all-white ticket. So I wonder, does that give the Democratic Party pause? That you, the only southern state, you know, you guys didn't even get close. And so I wanted to know, will they, will they be revamping their thought process or their strategy, their thinking? Or the people who are advising them? <laughs> what is your thoughts on that? <laughs> I think you're trying to set me up. <laughs> I think you're trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> but no, no, I, I'm, I'm not kidding. I, one thing about me is that I say I say what I believe, and that's all mm-hmm. I'm going to say. Um, but I'll tell you this. Uh, first of all, whether the party is going to change in that respect, they ain't going to change unless it's in their face. They're not going to change unless we continue to demand and we continue to agitate. Okay, that change is not going to happen. But more importantly, to look at look at the uh, the James Smith situation. Um, first of all, and and, and, I, and I've said this before, but first of all, uh, James James Smith was a lackluster candidate. He was okay on, all across the board. Okay, they could have pumped up his uh, by uh, up his candidacy by having a I'm not going to say minority by having an African American on the ticket. Okay. But here's what happened. And this is just a personal observation, but everything I say is true. James Smith did not go out of his way to get the black vote. Okay. And here's what he did do. And I think that this demonstrates the, um, uh, the short sightedness of those who are running those campaigns at the Democratic, um, convention. Uh, when was that? In June. In June, right, exactly. Okay, here's what happened. Let me, let, let me describe the situation for people who were not there. The candidates who were running for office um, appeared, uh, Democratic candidates, each appeared, and they brought their staff on, 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 up, on, on, up on board and showed them who they were, women, African-Americans, all staff. Here's what happened to James Smith. He came in. And when he came, before he came in, before he spoke, he had the entire Benedict College marching band, all black, 
must have been, I don't know how many, and they were sharp too. I got to give it to them. They were sharp. And they came in and everybody was on their feet. It was, it was pandemonium. It was old style politics. He marched, he marched the, the band in. They played. I'm sure they were, pay- well, they may not have been. I don't know. But he marched the band in. Everybody was on their feet and they were, da, 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 da. and that was it. That was it. That was it. So what he was doing, in my view, what he was doing was playing old time racial Politics is what he was paying. You don't have to give them nothing. You just, you just get them up on their feet and jumping and hollering. Okay. He also had Clyburn. Now, hey, Clyburn endorsement. For those of us who know history, we know that for many years, after the, after we got the vote, you know, for many years, that was the strategy. The strategy was always go into every black neighborhood, get the preacher, Pay him some money and let the preacher support him. That's the same thing and just, just they're doing with politicians now. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying, I don't mean to say anything disingenuous, uh, or, or, uh, or to attribute anything untoward to Congressman Clyburn. What I'm saying is that James Smith had to believe that all he needed was Congressman Clyburn's endorsement. For him to win the black community. Those days are over. The Democratic Party needs to understand that because this is a new day. Okay. Change game way. <laughs> well, Mr. Cadero, I'd like to thank you for joining me. Um, if people wanted to get in contact with you and kind of find out how they can be a part of some of the things that the black caucus, Democratic Black Caucus has going, how would they do that? Okay. First thing that would, first thing I would invite them to do is to go to our Facebook group page, uh, South uh, Democratic Black Caucus of South Carolina and join us. That's number one. Number two, I'm going to give you, uh, my, my personal email address and anyone who would like to join. Oh, let me, let me just say this before I give you the address. There's only one race and that's the human race. Okay. So that let everybody be clear. We are pro-black and we are about getting the, the things that we need for the black community to be secure in the Democratic Party to fight for Democratic ideals in the future. But we are not exclusive. Okay. Anybody can join us. All you have to do, all you have to do is uh, uh, agree with the things that we agree with. And that's putting, putting forward a, a progressive agenda that recognizes the, recognizes the importance of the support of the entire Democratic Party. Okay. And if you can do that, you can join us. But if you go to, if you go to my, my, uh, my email address, which is my last name, C-O-R-D-E-R-O 1018 at att.net and just drop me a line and say, Hey, I would like to send me your email. I'll get your email address. I will then put you on our, um, our, uh, uh mailing list. And then you'll be able to keep up with what we're doing. Our next, I don't know when this is going to broadcast, but my, our next meeting is going to be December 8th. And uh, if you'll do that, I'll be glad to send you an invitation. Come and join us. Help us make this real. Help us make this important. But remember that we're, we're about confrontational politics. Okay. Well, Mr. Cadero, I'd like to once again thank you for joining me. Uh, you have definitely... 
uh, gave me some nuggets to think about, and I'm definitely going to revisit this idea of this strategy of confrontational politics. Uh, once again, I just like to say thank you, and I will definitely be joining you guys for a meet, uh, for a meeting, and I look forward to seeing what I can do to support, uh, the listening sessions. And we appreciate this opportunity on behalf of the Democratic Black Caucus of South Carolina. Just let me say thank you. And let me also say in passing that, um, that we appreciate what you do and all the things that you do and in terms of in terms of getting information out making real information that people can use available to the black community and to others but uh you've always been a staunch fighter and we appreciate this opportunity and again thank you for everything you do michael right thank you and i appreciate the support thank you for listening to this episode of the minority voice for those of you who would like to be a part of our mission to start a courageous conversation that educates and empowers minority communities wherever they are You can support us by subscribing to this podcast, sharing it with your friends on social media, or liking and commenting with your thoughts. And if you would like to advertise with us or be a guest, or perhaps you have an idea for a show, please email me at mb at theminorityout.com or call us at 803-567-5359. Thank you for listening and remember, it's not when my voice is raised you should worry, it's when I have nothing more to say. Once again, I'm Michael Bailey, and this has been the Minority Voice Podcast.